Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all here. Thank you for being here. And Father's, special happy Father's Day to you. Um, at the end of April, we took about 45 men from our church to go see a movie called Kingdom Men Rising. It was a really good movie. And one of the, you know, one of the takeaways when you see a movie like that is it's kind of like, it was, it was great in that it was a biblical call for men to bring their lives in accordance with scripture and to, to, to lead their families. And, and one of the things you can um, walk away with is thinking, man, I'm, I'm a bad dad and I haven't done what I should do and I'm, you know, I'm not doing, you know, and, and in a way that's good if you're convicted and like, I, I, need to, I need to change some things in my life and follow the Lord, that's good. But I would just encourage all the men in here, if you're a dad, you know, it's never too late to start today to love your wife and your family and the, the, the uh, relatives in your, in your life the way that Christ calls you to. It's never too late, okay? So that's an encouraging word from Jesus that you can change today. And if you weren't the dad you wanted to be, um, in Jesus Christ, you have not only the perfect father um, um, in heaven, but also a new start and an opportunity to love your family the way that you would uh, you would like to in accordance with the word. So I want to encourage you with that. Um, a few months ago, a church caused quite an uproar in the small town called Ridley, uh, which is outside of Philadelphia. And one of the town, uh, one of the pubs in this town of Ridley, it was a long time long-standing pub in town called Barnaby's. It was going out of business. And they were talking with a local church that wanted to buy the bar and turn it into a church building. And this was, again, this was just a few months ago. Well, when the people in the community caught wind about this conversation, they were outraged. The local Facebook pages blew up with complaints and heated debates and there were lots of negative comments rooted in fear about how the church would negatively affect the community. And some people in the community were afraid that the church members would go door to door sharing their faith. Other people were worried about the church's well-known ministry to the poor. They were afraid that the church would bring homeless people into town on buses um, in order to minister to them. Uh, some of the Citizens' biggest, well, the biggest fear, though, that was listed was that their local property taxes would go up if the bar was uh, bought by a tax-exempt church instead of a tax-paying business or restaurant. And so within a short time, the city leaders heard the community's concerns. They made a decision about how to proceed, and they ruled that a place of worship would not be allowed to purchase a space or building in that part of town since it was a commercial district. Only tax-paying businesses were eligible to purchase buildings there because the tax revenue would help the town and the school district. And the church had an opportunity to appeal the decision, but they declined to do so. And the pub has since been bought by another bar who wants to carry on the tradition of Barnaby's with their new bar and grill. And without knowing much about that situation, there appears to be a number of issues there concerning religious freedom and local government and constitutional rights and all that kind of stuff. But when I saw that, I thought, you know, in reality, all of those um, superficial issues, which are important, they're really symptomatic of a much deeper issue 
a, a deeper spiritual conflict. The real reason so many citizens of that town were afraid of Christians sharing their faith, afraid of the church ministering to the poor, afraid of taxes going up, is because they do not love the Lord. If they did love the Lord, they would be glad to welcome a church into their community. They, they would be more concerned about their neighbors knowing Jesus than about being disturbed by spiritual conversations. If, if they love Jesus, they would want to obey God's commands to care for the poor and the oppressed. If, if they love the Lord, then they would be more concerned about seeing Jesus' name worship in town than about property taxes going up. People do not like it when their comfort, their safety, and their money are threatened. These things are false gods, idols, in the lives of many people that people cling onto and worship instead of God or in addition to God. And in a town like ours, which is growing and changing just like many towns are all across the country, we Christians must be very careful not to worship these same community idols as well. Because if we treasure our own personal comfort and unreasonable safety and our wealth more than we treasure Jesus and more than we treasure people and more than we treasure the advancement of God's kingdom, we are wrong. We must repent of that lest our faith in Jesus turn out not to really be faith at all. Jesus said in John 15, 18 to 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So Jesus says that the reason the world feels threatened by Christians and hates Christians in the gospel and persecutes Christians is because the world does not know God. That's what Jesus says. So all who are against God obviously are enemies of God. And when non-believers hate us because of Christ, when governments oppress Christians, when society blasts uh, Bible-believing Christians as, as bigots because they follow Jesus and his instructions, what we have to do is step back and see the reality of what's going on. That there is a spiritual battle happening between God and the evil powers of this world and the flesh of our bodies and against Satan. And because of this, it would be surprising if the world didn't create an uproar when the light of Christ moved into its darkness. And we saw this in last week's passage in the book of Acts when Paul faced great opposition in Ephesus, uh, which was a city steeped in dark magical practices, blatant idol worship. But as we saw that the gospel of Jesus prevailed and it spread all throughout Ephesus and even uh, throughout all of the uh, surrounding region of Asia, which would be a... Uh, a, a, a region um, known for its Christian influence for centuries to come. And the reality 
we see, though, is, is, is that the Ephesians who had not turned to Jesus were still strongly opposed to the Lord and his church. And as we read about what happened next then in Ephesus, we're going to see how uh, the fear of idols is a misplaced fear, why we should trust Jesus instead of our idols, and how to follow Jesus in a world full of idol worshipers. If you have your Bible with you, please open up with me to Acts chapter 19, if you haven't done so already. Nineteen twenty-one. Before we read this, let's ask the Lord to, to help us. Lord, we thank you for this time we have together this morning. We thank you for the word that you've given to us. Uh, it's, it's your word breathed out by your Holy Spirit to uh, bring your name glory and to shape us into the people uh, you want us to be. And so we ask that you would use this passage before us today to, to shape us uh, for the glory of your name on earth and in heaven and also, Lord, for our eternal joy. Um, please convict us of sin in our own life. Help us to see you and your awesomeness, your holiness. Help us to rejoice today in the salvation we have in you. And God, give us strength to see the idols in our own lives that we need to turn from. Give us power to do that, to repent and to turn to you again so that we can enjoy true freedom, true peace, and true hope that only you can offer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage here, Paul's nearing the end of his two-year ministry in Ephesus. And we read about his future plans in verses 21 to 22. It says, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So one of the things you see here, and which I love about the Apostle Paul, is that he was more concerned with building the kingdom of God than with building one huge local church family. Instead of growing that little Ephesus church, which was booming, he could have grown it into his own little kingdom where he could be king. Paul did what he did Elsewhere, He preached the gospel, he saw Jesus grow his church, and then Paul helped the church identify and appoint elders who would lead the church and teach God's word and care for its members. And we know that Paul did that because he says he did it in the next chapter. And so Paul uh, then would move on to another town and do the same thing. And in verses 21 to 22 here, the Holy Spirit falls, uh, fills Paul with a resolve to leave Ephesus and to do three things. First, he fills uh, Paul with a resolve to visit and strengthen the young churches that he had helped start throughout the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. And he sends his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, ahead of him to go to those regions. Second, Paul resolves to collect an offering in those regions and to take that offering to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And I know you don't see that in this text, but I'm going to get there. And third, Paul resolves to visit the church in Rome on his way to Spain. And we know all of this because around the exact same time, Paul wrote his letter to the church that had already begun in Rome. And in Romans 15, 23 to 28, Paul writes this. 
But now, since I no longer have any work, uh, any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it. And indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I've completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So like Paul, we want our hearts as individuals and as a local church family to be, voted to, to be devoted to strengthening local churches in our community and around the world and to caring for the poor in our church family and around the world and to advancing the kingdom of God among people of all people groups on earth through the uh, preaching of the gospel and then establishing of local churches. That was part, uh, Paul's heart, which was in sync with uh, the Lord's heart, and we want that to be our heart too. In our monthly sunshine offering, our church missions budget, our uh, different mission trip opportunities here in our church and in our community, uh, the ways that you serve this community from here all the way down to Seattle, all these things help to serve these three important purposes. So thank you for being part of the Lord's work in those ways. And then right before Paul leaves Ephesus now, opposition again rises up against him, against Jesus, and against the church. And let's look at that in Acts 19, 23 to 27. It says, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there's danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So the economy of Ephesus was largely supported by the worship of their main Greek goddess Artemis. Um, again, like we said last week, there was a 600-year-old temple there, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And silversmiths in Ephesus, like this man Demetrius, they made lots of small silver shrines, which were miniature models of that great temple of Artemis. And travelers would uh, visit Ephesus, and they would buy these shrines either to take them to the temple and present them as an offering to Artemis, or they would buy a shrine and they would take it home wherever they lived, and they would have a little place of worship in their own house to Artemis. But because so many Ephesian citizens were becoming Christians, people weren't buying as many shrines. And this, this means that God, this says something about what God was doing among the people. That, that he was not merely leading people to pray a prayer to get them out of hell, right? 
That, that wasn't what the fullness of their Christian conversion looked like. God was leading people to trust him, but also to obey his commands. Right? Isn't that what Jesus said in the Great Commission? To go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So they're trusting in Jesus, and they're like, oh, now I'm a disciple, I'm a follower. So I'm going I'm to do what Jesus said to do. And what that meant is they couldn't worship their idols anymore. And because of the, the new heart that God had given them for the Lord and not for their idols, they didn't want to worship their idols. And what happened is as the Christians' lives were being transformed in this big city, it consequently transformed all of Ephesus. And the non-Christians did not like it. They did not like the way that their community was changing. Um, just like the people in that small town in rural Pennsylvania, the Ephesians had idols they wanted to protect at all costs. They wanted to protect their wealth. They wanted to protect their jobs at all costs, their reputations at all costs, and their temple of Artemis. Um, and in verse 27, the silversmith Demetrius here uses, basically if you look at the language he uses, it's fear-mongering to stir up the Ephesians. And ironically, uh, he, he's spreading this message of fear, but he's not concerned at all with fearing Jesus. He fears the loss of his job as an idol builder. He fears the loss of his wealth from building idols. He fears the loss of his reputation as a successful idol builder. And he uh, fears the loss of the reputation of the temple of Artemis. And consequently, the reputation of the whole city of Ephesus, which was known for Artemis' temple. And then verses 28 to 34 say, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward, had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So, so all the craftsmen of Ephesus, they get worked up here by Demetrius's fear-mongering speech, and they, they go into the streets, and they start this giant riot, and they're pulling in lots of people who don't even know what all the fuss is about, but they, they're like, hey, riot. Um, and so then it says the mob rushed into the theater in Ephesus, which is a large open-air theater. It was about two times bigger than the Angel of the Winds Casino in Everett. Okay, so that's, it's really big. And they probably came to this theater because that's where the uh, Ephesians normally had sitting meetings. And even though there wasn't a meeting scheduled, they probably said, hey, we're going to riot until the city leaders do something here. And when that happens, we see here Paul tries to enter the theater, but two, two things stop him. The believers in Ephesus don't allow him to go in. And then, this is an interesting thing, even some of Paul's non-Christian friends 
who were high-ranking officials in the government warned him not to go in the theater because he'd get torn to pieces. And so it says the, the crowd dragged in two of Paul's ministry companions from Macedonia, Gaius and Aristarchus. Uh, it doesn't, according to this passage, it doesn't look like they even gave a defense of themselves or the gospel, probably because most people in the theater didn't even know why they were there. Um, and then verse 33 says that the Jews put forward a Jewish man named Alexander to speak to the crowd, probably to explain to everybody that, hey, we Jews are not associated with the Christians, so don't blame us. But as soon as they put forward Alexander, the Ephesians didn't want to hear a Jewish man speak. Racial tensions were high. And that just ramped them up. And for two hours, it says, the Ephesians shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So remember, in the first century, all the cities around the Mediterranean Sea were occupied by the Romans. And so a city like Ephesus had its own Ephesian city government and Ephesian leaders, but they were ultimately under the umbrella of the Roman Empire. And the last thing that the Romans wanted was for an uprising in a city. And so it was crucial for the leaders of those cities to keep order. And if those leaders couldn't keep order, then the leaders are uh, killed, okay? So you've got some leaders in Ephesus now who are concerned about this, mainly for, probably for their own necks, right? And so the most important city officer in this town, he was the town clerk. And basically he was the liaison between the town and the Roman Empire. And so we read in verses 35 to 41, and when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk here, he does a good job. He, 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 he dissembles the mob and using basically three different tactics. First, he eases the Ephesians of their fears. He says, hey, nobody's going to take your precious idols away from you. Artemis is still on the throne. Her temple's still the pride of Ephesus. The economy's not going to go downhill. Nobody's going to lose their wealth. And it appears that once they were convinced that their false gods were safe and secure, they chilled out. And then the town clerk argues that the Christians were not a group that the Ephesians even needed to fear. Uh, he said the Christians, they're not guilty of anything sacrilegious or blasphemous behavior. It's, pos it's, it's not really possible to know if you really believe that or if he was just trying to stop the riot to save his own neck, right? And then third, the town clerk told the Ephesians, use the court system in place to resolve these things, right? The right way. Uh, and so what that meant is they could either prosecute the Christians in the court of the proconsul or they could bring up their concerns at one of the regular city meetings, and the town clerk convinces everybody that the real danger here, you guys, is not losing the Temple of Artemis, but being charged by the Romans with rioting. And the citizens listened to him, and the people exited that great theater. 
this passage speaks to three important issues facing you and facing me today. First, how the fear of idols is a misplaced fear. Second, why we should trust in Jesus instead of in our idols. And third, how we should follow Jesus in a world full of idol worshipers. First, this passage reminds us that the fear of idols is a misplaced fear. God created you and me, he created humans to revere, honor, and fear him. Him. That's a good thing. We should, listen, we would be fools not to revere, honor, and fear the most awesome supreme being in the universe who made us and he can do whatever he wants to us. When we look at today's passage, we see a lot of different fears in the hearts of people, but we don't see a fear of God. We see people afraid of losing their man-made gods. People are trusting in their jobs, and they can't lose their jobs or else they'll be devastated. People are trusting in the great wealth they've accumulated, and they can't lose that or else their lives won't be fulfilling if I don't have my money, and at worst, my life will be ruined. People are trusting in their reputations, their pride, their, their value was built into being an Ephesian and is specifically a craftsman connected with the temple of Artemis. And they're, they're trusting in their reputations, which are at risk, and they're afraid of losing those. People are trusting in their great temple. They're fearing the goddess that it represents who, uh, who gives them their value and, and cursed be anybody who devalues that value from Artemis. And you and I, you guys are at risk of being exactly like these people. Some of us used to be exactly like these people, but if, if we're followers of Jesus now, if we, if we really trust in Jesus, not only for salvation eternally, but if we trust Jesus that he cares about us and that he's over all the details of our lives, and if we trust in Jesus for our reputations, and for taking care of us, and for giving us the value we really need most, then we wanna do exactly what the Ephesian Christians did in last week's passage, which is the opposite of what these Ephesian citizens did. The Ephesian Christians turned away from their idols, they publicly confessed them, and then they even destroyed the physical items that connected them with those idols. So what are those things in your life that you don't believe you can live without when God says you can because he's going to take care of you? What are those false gods in your life which are hurting your relationship with the true God? What, what are those friendships, relationships, habits, thought patterns, possessions that you need to get rid of so that you can fully enjoy and follow Jesus Christ. Ask God to help you identify those things, to help you turn from those things, and then ask him to help you put new structures in place in your life to keep you away from those things that cause you to sin. If you tend to do a sin that happens at night in the dark, then you need to change something and you need to keep the lights on when you're up and you need to be in a public place in your living room where everybody could see you. It's not enough to get rid of false gods in our lives. 
We must replace false gods with the true God, the powerful, living Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it really is foolish to, to be afraid of anything offered that we think people can offer us or uh, that is made by people more than we fear God. It, it's, it's like this. It's like coddling a little paper tiger made out of tissue paper that can do nothing for you when you have the living, resurrected lion of Judah breathing his warm breath in your face and you're planning on this tissue paper tiger protecting you and, and giving you what you need. Revelation 5.5 says that Jesus is the lion of Judah. That paper tiger ain't gonna do nothing for you, okay, to rescue you in this life or in the next life. That paper tiger is gonna melt like tissue paper on the tongue of the lion of Judah. So our fear of false gods is a misplaced fear. We should fear God instead. And when we do that, we, we, when we really fear God more than anything, we don't have to be afraid of, ultimately, of losing a job. That might rock us a little bit. But that's not the most devastating thing that could happen to us. When we really fear God, we, uh, we don't have to be afraid of losing money or our reputations or our comforts, or even our lives, because in Jesus, we have all those things to the highest eternal degree. All those things are already ours in Christ. Second, this passage shows us why we should trust in Jesus instead of in our idols. Uh, some of the obvious reasons we should turn away from our idols and turn to Jesus, we've just mentioned. Jesus is our awesome creator, to whom we're eternally accountable. Jesus is the resurrected lion of Judah who prevails against his enemies and who thankfully offers us grace. Jesus gives us all the value and provision and love and satisfaction that we really will ever need and the, the only, he's the only one who can truly satisfy us. And so we should trust in Jesus instead of our idols because only Jesus can fix the biggest problems facing you and me. You hear that? The biggest problems facing you and me, only Jesus can take care of. Your idols cannot fix the biggest problems facing you, according to Scripture. The biggest problem facing you right now, and everybody in our community, and everybody in the state and country and the world, the biggest problem is suffering God's wrath now and forever, because we have disobeyed God individually and corporately over and over again. You've, you've got to believe that. And don't believe it because I say it, believe it because God says it in his word. Romans 2, 5 to 8 says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So what do we do with this? What do we do with the wrath of God hanging over our heads and what says, it says here is waiting to be poured out onto us the moment we die. And that's going to happen with wrath and fury. 
That's our biggest problem. Now, to complicate this, God is very clear that neither our greatest acts of kindness nor our most humiliating acts of penance can rescue us from this fate because we have rebelled against the awesome holy God of the universe. And so by disobeying the eternal awesome holy God, we have told the one who is to be feared most that he's not worthy of being feared most. That he's not worthy of our greatest honor and respect and fear. We have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have chosen to fear gods of our own making instead of the true God. And so what is, because of that reality, what is the the Lord's disposition toward us as individuals and as a people? We've all disobeyed him. Scripture says his disposition toward us is radical love and justice. Radical love and justice. Thankfully, God loves us, even though he doesn't have to. He could simply be a just God, right, who has no compassion on those who do wrong, and he would still be righteous. But that's not God, uh, what God tells us he is like in his word. The, the evil against God, the evil uh, that the people have done um, as a whole, the evil that the people have done as a whole, as a human race, and as indivi- individuals, must be punished eternally. Because God is an eternal God. His law is eternal. We are everlasting beings. And that's our rebellion against the eternal God and his eternal law earns for us eternal punishment. And so it's the only right punishment. And when we say, because our human minds can real quickly, I mean, I've asked this, I've thought about this, it, that doesn't seem fair when we think that way, this is what we're doing. We're making, again, a false God that we want to worship rather than submitting to the real God who says, this is how it is. And we are, in our minds, really depreciating the holiness of God. Romans 2.8 says that there must be suffering, the wrath and fury of God because of sin, and God gives us graciously a second option. (laughs) So either God's suffering will be poured onto us when we die, or it says we can accept God's suffering on our behalf. Either God's wrath is on us, or we accept God's wrath suffered on him on, uh, on our behalf. This is why Jesus came to earth, you guys. This is why he died on the cross, to suffer our wrath for us, to die on the cross, the punishment we deserve. Only God can take away sin. That's one of the reasons people hated Jesus, is because he forgave people of their sins, and the people said, only God can forgive sin. And so Jesus kind of said, well, yeah. (laughs) I'm God, right? Our idols can't take away our sin. They can't, they can't touch this problem. Jesus bore our sins in his body when he was crucified outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And then as the embodiment of sin, he suffered the fullness of the Father's wrath toward him and toward all who put their faith in Jesus so that 
all of the wrath was absorbed by Jesus and none is left for his followers. See that? And to prove that this sacrifice was legit, that the wrath is gone, that Jesus' sacrifice, his atoning work was totally accomplished, he rose from the dead in victory three days later. And, and all of us who trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross, what this means now is we will be saved because the wrath is no longer ours to suffer because Jesus suffered it for us. So why would we trust in anything else besides Jesus if we, if we believe this? Only Jesus can save us. And why can only Jesus save us? Because only Jesus is God. And that's why only Jesus can make us right with God. So read the Bible and you'll see that all the nations of the earth, all the cultures of humanity for thousands and thousands of years have been creating gods to worship instead of the Lord. But Jesus says, I'm the only way to eternal salvation. I am the exclusive savior of humanity. Other religions can't save you from God's wrath. Not because, listen, the message is not because Christianity is arrogant, but because Jesus is the only Savior. He's the only hope. Who else has done it? Who else suffered the wrath of God? Nobody. And nobody but God could do it to take it away for us. He died to save all peoples from all nations who will turn away from their false gods and turn to him instead. In John 3.36, Jesus said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, you know, sometimes we need to get out of our heads. You know, you'll hear people say, yeah, Jesus just seems so disconnected from the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is so loving and kind and merciful, and he just basically helped people, and the God of the Old Testament was just mean and punished people. Listen, read the Bible. I'm sorry, but John 3.36, Jesus is talking about the wrath of God here. Do you see that? And that's because Jesus is the same God as the God of the Old Testament. So trust in Jesus instead of your idols because only Jesus can fix for you your greatest problem of God's wrath. And when you believe in Christ and when his Holy Spirit indwells you, he then will help you with all these superficial, those significant issues that you wrestle with in the course of your life on earth. Jesus doesn't only care about saving you from his wrath. He, that is your most serious problem. And so he took care of that for you. And now he's going to help you in your life take care of the other issues too because he loves you. So Jesus' message to you is, is to pray to him and to thank him for dying on the cross and rising again and to trust in him today, uh, today, to be saved from his wrath and to be adopted into his family. What a savior Jesus is. Do you see what that says about God? So, ho holy means he's so unlike us in so many ways. Instead of, instead of just wiping us out, he says, I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna offer you grace for the glory of my own name. Wow, what a savior Jesus is. His name is worthy to be revered and honored and feared by all peoples everywhere. And then third, the passage shows us how we should follow Jesus in a world full of idol worshipers. So, so one of the things that makes Christianity different than other faiths is that our God commands, commands us to proclaim a message. 
So this whole idea of, well, Christianity, man, my faith is such a private thing for me. It's just like I don't really talk about it with other people because it's just really personal, and I just have this intimate relationship with God. It's like, well, then you have made a God in your own image because the God of the Bible commands you to declare the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what he says. He commands us to, be, to make noise, okay? He commands us to tell others the specific news with words that God the Son, Jesus Christ, has come in the flesh, that he's, he lived a life without sin unlike any of us. He died on the cross as a substitute for sin unlike anybody else who's ever died. He's risen from the dead and ascended into heaven unlike anybody else. He's reigning over all things right now. Uh, and, and he offers us salvation from our sin. He offers us friendship with him if we believe these things and put our trust in him. This is the verbal proclamation of the gospel of Jesus and it's what gets Christians into trouble. It's what got Jesus into trouble. People wouldn't have had a problem with Jesus if he would have shut up. And so how do we do what Jesus wants us to do in this world and not get the world all upset like Ephesus, right? When you look at that passage, well, our world's not that much different from Ephesus. So how do I live here and not make that happen? Well, there are three main options that we, at this church and Christians in our community and in our state have. First, we can shut up and not tell people the gospel. To do that, though, is to dis disobey God. And this is what many self-proclaimed Christians have opted to do. They focus their efforts only on being nice to people and believing that somehow if we just go do physical acts of kindness for people, it somehow fulfills the commission of making disciples of all nations. On a governmental level, historically, restriction of speech has been the approach of communist regimes to not allow people to talk about Jesus or for that matter about anything they, they don't want you talking about. Another option, another way you get around this is to decide the Bible's not true in your own mind, the Bible can't be true. Uh, God's wrath, this isn't real. We're misunderstanding this. We're misinterpreting this. These words didn't mean what we think they mean. And so I don't need to really tell anybody about this because it, it doesn't really exist. That's not what a God, the loving God that I know would do. So essentially your, your option, you can make an idol <laughs> that's not the true God. But not telling people the gospel, the good news, is clearly not how Jesus instructs us to, to live our lives in a world full of idol worshipers like we all were once. A second option then is to tell people that Jesus is one of many ways that people can know God. This was the approach of the Roman Empire in, in an attempt to keep peace among all the different nations they conquered. They simply adopted all of the gods of the nations they conquered so that nobody's gods were inferior to anybody else's. And this is also the way that many people in our country approach religion. And, and the approach works fairly well as long as you stay uneducated. As long as you don't know anything about what religions actually teach. Because it only takes 10 minutes reading the Bible 
or any of a number of sacred texts from other religions to see that we do not believe the same things. So you can convince yourself that all religions lead to God. If, uh, you know, um, but the belief that all religions lead to God is, is, is mainly appeasing on the surface level. But if you dig down just a few inches, you find that really it's logically incoherent. And that is not just for Christians. We've, we have very different belief than Jews and Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, right? Doesn't mean we can't love one another and, and, and work together, but it is foolish to say, uh, we pretty much believe the same thing, so I don't think we need to have this discussion. It's neither logically coherent nor faithful to the message of Jesus to preach that Jesus is one God among many gods. And so the third option is to serve the world with kindness and to tell them Jesus' own words, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. I did not make that up. You did not make that up. Those are Jesus' words. This third option, to love others and to speak truth, was Jesus' approach, it was Paul's approach, it was all of the apostles' approach, and it was the approach of all the ancient prophets who pointed forward to Jesus. And so, there is a way to tell this message, um, or, or sorry, is there a way then to, to say this news without people getting mad at you? Is there a way for churches to proclaim the gospel without creating riots in the cities? Well, I would say this, we certainly can and should couch the gospel message in a context of sacrificial love and kindness and gentleness and good works. That can help. But even Jesus did that and people still hated him. So at the end of the day, loving God and loving others by seeking to obey Jesus' commands and in, in, in spreading the gospel is the way that God commands us to live. But he doesn't promise us peace on earth. He does not promise us compassion from those who would oppose us. We should actually expect to happen what happened in Ephesus and in, and, and because this is basically what happened in all of the cities Paul preached the gospel in. When that doesn't happen, we thank God. We get to live another day, right? I mean, if, not that that's our greatest value, but hey, Thank you, God, for showing us mercy in this way today. And, and while we share the gospel to others and encourage others to repent from their idols, we, we do this with humble spirits, knowing that we too have idols that we need to repent daily from. Okay? So as we seek to turn to the Lord and trust Him and know Him and enjoy Him more and more, we want to commit our lives and our ministry efforts into the the, the, the hands of the Lord, because ultimately he's the one in control. And that's what Paul does today at the end of today's passage. See, he began with his plans, and then a lot of junk happened, and then in Acts 21 he says, or it says, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. You guys, please stand up with me. We're gonna pray together.
And uh, I'm going to send us off here. Let's just worship the Lord for who he is and pray. Jesus, we just declare to you that you are the one true God here at Cedar Home Baptist Church. That's what we believe. We thank you for coming to suffer your wrath in our place. We thank you that you have grace and compassion and love for us. God, we just declare, Jesus, you are our hope. You're the only one who can save. You're the only Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. And so I just pray that you would be the object, the only object of our greatest reverence and fear and praise, not just here in this place, but 24-7, Lord. May your name be on our lips as the God who saves. And God, we just ask that you would save people in our midst who are who are turning from their idols and trusting in you today for the first time. God, give us a desire for you that is so great that that the idols to which we once looked seem puny and totally unable to give us the satisfaction only you can give us. Help us to see all of the idols that we're clinging to as paper tigers before the Lion of Judah. We love you, Lord. May your name be worshiped well in our hearts and minds today and this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here. Have a great day.